This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and here is another episode of the 3D Pod. And we're here, as always, with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, everyone. And yeah, Max and I are joined today by John Barnes. And John's been working in product development, mostly aerospace, for more than 25 years. He's worked at Honeywell, Lockheed Martin, uh, Arconic. And now he's a, a university professor at two universities at the same time. And uh, he's one of the most notable 3D printing consultants uh, in the industry and really focused a lot on aerospace, on actual industrial production, manufacturing, end-use parts, uh, kind of where the metal meets the road. And uh, yeah, so welcome to the show, John. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. So, so John, first off, like, like, how did you end up getting getting involved with 3D printing? Uh, completely by luck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was actually uh, I was my my joke uh, to my friends is, is that I was the least valuable engineer at Honeywell, and so they put me on the 3D printing project. Um, <laughs> which, as a as a young engineer, I was fresh out of grad school, and uh, they had. Uh, joined a CRADA at Sandia National Labs. Two of the scientists were leaving to do an entrepreneurial leave of absence on a product that they had developed, which is now known as the Optimac Lens Machine. Oh, and wow. uh, so from the very first day, so that was Dave Keicher, uh, who's a really lovely guy. I haven't seen him for years, but um, it was a fascinating project because even then, really diverse companies could see the benefit of this technology. So the Creta was comprised of 10 different companies. There was Honeywell and Lockheed Martin, kind of the usual suspects, and Pratt & Whitney. Uh, but 3M, Ford, and Hasbro were all involved in this you know, Creta. And uh, so it was really interesting. As, as, of course, as a young engineer, you get to go to Sandia National Labs and flex your muscles with uh, the scientists there. And uh, so that was that was actually my start uh, going back to the late 1990s. Tell us a little bit more about Lens or, or what, what happened on the project, essentially, because it's, it's now it's a kind of established technology, but probably not a really familiar one. Yeah. So it's what we would call directed energy uh, pow- or blown powder. Uh, so you're you inject uh, metal powder into the laser beam and you can articulate the beam uh, to, you know, add features to things and or build something straight up and so early on uh, interests uh, were for things like impellers which were you know very uh, complex CNC machine parts typically with not great uh, what we call buy to fly you know a lot of material wasteage Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um, but then we also started playing around with repair and we were finding that we could get better joint efficiency you know, that when we pull tensile bars, we'd fail outside of the joint, we'd fail in the parent material. Um, so, you know, it was early days in the technology of where you might be using this technology. So, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was pretty fascinating then. Um, it's only gotten better since then. And, you know, later on, I had an opportunity to work on different variants of, of that technology where you're either using a CO2 laser, a much higher power laser, uh, when we were doing projects at Lockheed with Boeing and then uh, moving over to wire-fed DED systems using things like electron beams. So that, mm-hmm. that really got interesting. So that was my first look into it. And then uh, also on site, we had 
you know, the legacy SLA machines for making, you know, little prototypes. Um, but also we would use it for making, uh, you know, casting molds, you know, make the reverse mold. Uh, so, you know, this was 1998. It was an interesting time. And, and I think what was, what captured people's early part was we kind of went into this mode where at that time we could aerodynamically design very complicated parts, but we didn't have manufacturing technologies to make them affordably. So our ability to analyze things was really good. And then our ability to manufacture things wasn't that sophisticated. It was kind of limited to what we could machine. You know, then all of a sudden this technology came in and we, we built up a you know, kind of a fancy uh, fan blade for somebody showing, you know, amazing twist and cord uh, that was then also hollow. And, you know, so clearly we weren't going to put a, <laughs> we weren't going to use a new material and a new technology on, mm -hmm. on a critical part like a fan blade, but, you know, it was a good mm -hmm. demonstrator to show, well, this is what's possible. The interesting thing about lens and other these DAD technologies, not only from, from Optimec, but also Shiaki and stuff, is that they were developed uh, in the U.S. defense community, let's say, uh, for a lot of applications we probably can't go into. But, um, <laughs> and, and just generally, the, these technologies went from Sandia and then ended up being used for really prosaic things or, or, or like, you know, really kind of hands-on things. I mean, you did talk about, you know, this wow, shebang kind of, oh my God, a completely new thing, but they were also used a lot for like to bear, to repair turbine blisks and turbine blades, uh, re rejuvenate molds and things like that. Yeah, that's right. And, and um, you know, we, we weren't that, obviously the molds thing, you know, is never the most sexy thing to be working on at any point mm -hmm. in time, but yeah. actually tends to help people make money. Um, so that's yeah, uh, the, you know, the joys of youth, <laughs> which is <laughs> you know, focusing on the interesting thing as opposed to the actual mm -hmm. thing. I was just saying, you studied aero, uh, aeronautical engineering in, in college? I assume. No, I was I was a materials engineer. So ah. at, at Purdue, I was the first class of material science engineering students. Oh, go boilermakers! Uh, everybody, yeah, go boiler up. Uh, <laughs> all previous classes were metallurgical engineers, and um, and so we were the first class of material science engineering. And then I got a master's degree in metallurgical engineering. Uh, ironically, I worked on a <laughs> on an intermetallic. So, but uh, also at Purdue. So. Yeah, I'm a materials. Okay, materials but um, back then, were there there weren't any 3D printers on campus at Purdue? No. Oh, hi, crazy. <laughs> Not that I know of. And as as a material scientist, if you look at it, like I mean, as a material scientist, you, you talked about this blade that that has hollow. I mean, what I like to say to people always is that with every 3D printed part, you can kind of make your own material for that application. Would you agree with that, or is that too simplistic? Do you think? Well, no, I think it's a good place to start. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's universal agreement on that right now. I think it's the, mm -hmm. I think it's kind of, well, it's kind of one of the issues with, with additive at the moment is that there's been, been, there's a lot of tribes, you know, there's different camps and, and there's the polymer tribe and there's the metal tribe and they usually don't really talk to one another, which is no different than, you know, as an M&P engineer, you know, there was materials and process engineering. And you had the non-metallic group, <laughs> so -metallic you know that always seemed a little bit cruel. But uh, and then there was the host of the different uh, materials groups. But you know we segmented things by that. I think there's a better way of hope. My hope is is that we, you know, come together on better ways of describing things uh, because it's part and parcel with one of the things I think that's holding the technology back, which is we keep using legacy terms to describe it. And, and this is probably the most multidisciplinary 
manufacturing technology that I've you know ever been involved with. We've had that. I mean, a really simple example of this is that we we all use SDL files and we're coming up with these gradient materials like object uh, object, but also other metal. Some metals technologies can do this as well. And nobody had a way to represent these gradient parts. I mean, you must have mm -hmm. run into that problem in the beginning as well, that, that you just didn't have the files or you didn't have the, the computing power to make all these amazing shapes. Yeah, or analyze them. <laughs> that was <laughs> the other part. Um, yeah. I, I worked with, uh, you know, some some really uh, smart guys at, at Lockheed, and, and one of them, you know, was using uh, the environment to alloy the materials he was building it up and you know in a, in a lens machine so you can imagine what kind of gradient structure you can have simply by mm -hmm. changing the gas composition inside the chamber and, and you you can make a much more effective you know kind of gradient structure so I'll, I'll give credit to Craig Bryce he's now at Colorado School of Mines but it, it was really interesting like most people were were fixated on trying to figure out how to mix enough powders and at the right time and you know all that kind of thing he, he was over here <laughs> working on this completely different idea of like, let's just use the environment. And as a, my, my degree, uh, my thesis was on um, thermochemistry. So, you know, I, I was like all about it. I was all over it. I was like, this is, fa this is fascinating. Uh, you know, let's talk about partial pressures of oxygen and, and uh, you know, those types of things. But I, I think that's largely unexplored. We can talk about gradient structures all we want, but, it's an enormously complicated subject mm -hmm. at, at one level. You know, it kind of begs the question, okay, well, what problem are we solving with it? You know, let's make sure we understand mm -hmm. that. But mm -hmm. I always used to tell people with 3D printing, the ink is, is infinite, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and it can change infinitely at the same time. So mm -hmm. I think it's one of the things that captures younger people, their attention in, uh, in this field, which I, is also enormously good because... Mm -hmm. You know, we need more, you know, basically we need more brains, <laughs> more mm -hmm. brains is always mm -hmm. good. And, uh, mm -hmm. more, and certainly more diverse brains is also good. And, and that's mm -hmm. one of the things that I've, you know, it's taken me a long time to learn, but, you know, getting people with different interests in, in this field is very healthy. And it's, you know, something that I've tried to take forward, you know, when I created the company is, is having a mixture of people, you know, kind of young and old, male and female and different types of degrees because we can come up with better solutions than, than other people. I think it's interesting you point out because, okay, gradient is, it's really interesting because we could, uh, I, I like my own like consultancy thing, it's called voxel fab because I really believe this whole idea is beautiful. Every single voxel we can assign a value to or we could change mm -hmm. the properties at that voxel. It sounds amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And then you run into kind of, well, like you said, like, like you run into a lot of problems in trying to, well, first off, come up with applications that actually work and are actually worth the effort of making such a part that's so difficult and difficult to qualify and make and all this. So an application that actually works and also like trying to understand what it actually can do. Like if you're talking about like the hope of gradient materials and also the limitations, what, what actually, what are you thinking about? Like there's simple explanations of gradient materials that I think help. And so, you know, a classic example was when I was at the engine company, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the idea of using ceramics. And, mm -hmm. and the problem is, is you, you, it's not that ceramics aren't productive in a gas turbine. Uh, there's a lot of issues associated with it, but then you usually make a disc and you make a blade and either the blade is ceramic or the, or the disc is ceramic. On occasion, you know, you'll try to do the whole thing. That's that, that was, of course, risky when you're new to ceramic. 
So anyway, what they tried to do was come up with, you, know, you run into this thermal problem that ceramics ex don't expand much and the metals expand a lot. So if you try to put a metal blade in a ceramic disc with a fir tree kind of a attachment, you end up just pinching off the metal blade as it tries to expand and the ceramic isn't. And mm -hmm. so what they, uh, what we tried to do is we came up with these compliant layers, you know, which is then a kind of a compromise to put something that's squishy in there that holds it while it's cool, but allows it to expand and, and com is compliant, right. you know, to the, to the metal, you know, and that's really a crude form of a gradient structure. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, we kind of evolved to, we all got fascinated with composites and airplanes and, and that's, mm -hmm. that's all great until, you know, we need to, you know, we love making things out of aluminum <laughs> in, in airplanes. <laughs> And aluminums and graphite don't really, you know, go together very well. The, you know, that mm -hmm. aluminum expands like crazy. Graphite doesn't expand at all. Uh, there's a galvanic couple there, you know, things which are naturally bad for airplanes. <laughs> and sure. um, so then you come in with a lot of titanium, you know, which, which brings its own issue. Again, another form of, of a gradient solution, but on a much larger scale. You know, you can certainly imagine where when you get into some more detailed structures, you know, where you can start to control things like thermal expansion, hardness, even Poisson effect. And, and these aren't like everyday engineering tools for, for a lot of companies. Um, so they simply just, you know, they don't know, I guess they don't know what to do with it in, in a lot of, in a lot of cases. And, and, mm -hmm. and I think part of it, it just goes back to like basic manufacturing, basic design engineering mm -hmm. that a lot of companies we've found don't have forgotten the requirements around the part that they've been making. It's so mature at this point mm -hmm. that the guys who originally developed it, you know, retired. And, right. and so people are just continuing to make that shape and they don't, you know, it's like, okay, well, why is it round? You know, I, I don't know. And like, did the customer tell you that it had to be round? No, mm -hmm. no, they don't really care whether it's round or not. I'm like, okay, well, it turned out, you know, in this one company, we went through this exercise and it turned out that it was round because they were hipping powder and you, or mm -hmm. things into a cylinder. That's why it's round. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, well, you know, would your customer like it if it were not round? Maybe if it's flat, maybe they could make it conformal. And then all of a sudden it was like, huh, yeah, how about that? <laughs> so I, I, I think that, you know, gradient, it, it fits into that solution space. It's just kind of like, okay, but what do we do with it? And, and what do we mean by gradient? And what are we, what, again, what problem are we solving with it? Because there's lots of things you can do. Uh, you know, you can make mm -hmm. bearing surfaces, you can make a compliant layer, you can, you know, control how the thing's going to grow or shrink. Now, not a, you know, a lot of applications don't need that level of attention. So that's the issue. But, you know, I, I go back to it. Most people still don't know what 3D printing is. So they, they yeah. it'd yeah. be great if they said, you know, we have to have a gradient structure to mm -hmm. do what we want to do. And then, mm -hmm. by the way, 3D printing provides the avenue for that to happen. You know, that that's the logical progression. But you know, we still see a lot of 3D printing as magic and it makes fun shapes. Because <laughs> <So. laughs> yeah. yeah. another weird thing is like we can actually like in metals, for example, you could adjust the microstructure in way or influence the microstructure in some way to get different properties. You could potentially do some kind of voxel based kind of uh, adjustment to, to, yes. to, to whatever part in the space. You could also make like a lattice right or a cellular or like a foam like structure and all these three things could be the same thing and then you could use that to make a part right and then so you're actually like engineering on different levels all the time is that gonna is that scary does that excite you or uh I, honestly i think you know I, I saw recently there was an article about 
uh, group of scientists that had made a uh, a sword, you know, the the uh, Damascus steel using a uh, uh, powder bed, and, and mm -hmm. so they'd recreated the microstructure, which is very elaborate. You know, the, the, mm -hmm. they figured out you know how to make these incredibly tough uh, steel blades, you know, centuries ago, I guess, um, by you know basically beating them, folding them, beating them, folding them, beating them. And you do so by microstructure. So that was like my fundamental thing from the time I was an intern was microstructure, microstructure, microstructure. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Let's go look at the microstructure. It'll tell us what happened. And um, so you, you look at that, you look at um, the, like the, the, the teams at uh, Oak Ridge National Labs, you know, controlled the deposition to write DOE in microstructure you know, so they changed the microstructure in the D, the zero, the O, and the E versus the rest mm -hmm. of the microstructure. And then even mm -hmm. at Carnegie Mellon, they're tailoring the microstructure. They can go within the theme in the RCAM machine. They can tailor the mm -hmm. parameters yeah. to give you a different microstructure at the surface than you get mm -hmm. inside. And, mm -hmm. and so the, you know, like this is the thing, you know, everybody's like, oh, yeah, okay, here's John, the materials guy, talking about his materials things. And you know, microstructure, <laughs> that's all imaginary. And, but you know it's it's the reality that that's actually what dictates pretty much everything that's going to happen after that the performance so that's that's really interesting and then i think you know there was a project uh, at arconic you know where they had and some other people you know it's like one of these things where it's a good idea can be had by multiple people at the same time and i think there was a group in um, france that had come up with a very similar idea but you know the idea of printing uh, using a wire-fed process and then forging it. Now, mm -hmm. what was yeah. yeah, what was kind yeah. of lost in translation yeah. there was is that if you did that versus taking a solid billet, uh, you yeah. know, forging is about controlling strain rate through the process. And if so, in materials like titanium, you can control the microstructure by controlling the strain rate. So mm -hmm. I could provide one microstructure in certain features and a different microstructure elsewhere in the same part simply by controlling my, what I started with versus what I finished with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I remember pointing that out to people and they were kind of like, what are you on about? <laughs> like, you, okay, once again, John's gone off the boat on his uh, microstructure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was like, well, look, you, you've got really good fatigue crack growth resistant uh, yeah. microstructure here. And over here, you've got really good fatigue initiation resistant material. Mm -hmm it's kind of the best of both worlds because, you know, people like titanium because it's tough and cracks don't grow. You either get resistance or initiation resistance. You, it's hard to do both. And I was like, we just figured out a way to do both. And then nobody was excited about it. I was like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm just going to go home now because I'll, uh, I'll console myself on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think so microstructure in metal, you know, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good thing to base your career on. I mean, it's been one of the biggest challenges in DMLS or in sintering of metals, just control of microstructure. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of these processes kind of very black boxes. We don't exactly know what's going on mm. in the, uh, in the, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we, we don't really understand it. We don't understand like there, for example, there's a lot of misbuilds in titanium or in other materials as well, but, but, but because of these, uh, you know, because of the sphericality of the powder, right. And because of like these grain islands, these, uh, these what do they call the satellites, satellites, those things. And we don't really understand what, what those things are, are 
why, what's creating them, right? So I'm just wondering, like, are, are you seeing more process control? Is it like we're understanding these processes finally uh, from a, uh, on a microstructural level, what's actually going on when we print metal? Definitely more process control. You know, the, the, the printer boxes are less mysterious than they used to be. And, and I think we know a lot more about them. Uh, when I look back to some of the work that we were doing when we were trying to qualify parts for Airbus, I mean, uh, in retrospect, we didn't really know probably as much as we should have, but we were kind of led in, you know, the, these boxes are very, very complicated. It's easy to kind of lull yourself into, well, when things are complicated, you, you do kind of have to just go after the things you know, and, and then mm -hmm. yeah, the rest will follow. I, I definitely think versus where we're at today versus even four years ago is the machines are all much better and we, we have a much better idea of what's going on in there. Uh, just really quickly before we leave the, the microstructures thing, you know, so <laughs> I remember, I remember talking to one of my scientists at CSIRO uh, a year before Oak Ridge had done that, that microstructure manipulation. And I said, can you work out a way for me to, to uh, basically take the STL file down to the microstructure level? I should be able to print the microstructure I want by telling the printer at that level. And, and, the, and they uh -huh. just, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so a year so later, I, I took this article and I was like, look, I am not crazy. Uh, but it would also, um, as an SDL, be the biggest file in the world. Right. I, was say, <laughs> I didn't say it had to be a big part. You know, we could be making a small cube, but, uh, you know, we're, you know, we were an applied research body. So that's, uh, you know, kind of what I, I saw that our challenge should be like, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this? And they're like, yeah, there's three people in the world that would find that to be cool, John. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, you know, kind of going back to the, the printers, I still think our, you know, the, the knowledge is good enough. I was on a call yesterday with, with kind of like executives all the way down to some engineers. And, and one of the engineers just waded into this category of, well, we still don't really understand the physics. And like all the other engineers just jumped in and was like, shut up. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't tell an executive that you don't understand, understand the physics, physics. Yeah. <laughs> behind, you know, the, that's never appropriate. And, and then, you know, but fortunately one of the, and, and, you know, more middle management people stepped in and said, well, you know, I understand what you're saying. But, you know, to use this where the application that we're uh, looking to use it for first doesn't really under, require us to understand, you know, the physics at an atomistic level. It, we have a, a good enough appreciation of if we do this, this is what happens. And we've done a lot of characterization. If we want to, like, make aircraft parts out of this, uh, yes, we need to have yet another level of uh, knowledge about let's say physics to be able to do that but that's not really what we're talking about here i think you know if you you, you, t you step into all of these things so i think the machines have gotten better we're, we're kind of sweating on the processing side of things i i personally believe as a materials guy like we're in the dark ages on powder you know we we don't you know what's magic about 15 to 45 microns you know for powder yeah exactly right yeah you know yeah we want to round but not too round not always <laughs> Yeah, you know, so I think the way to explain that is, is it's a complex subject and we chose a simplicity and we said, look, we need a, we need a box. And if we have a box, you know, we can do all this other magic with it. And so I, I understand that it, it was a, it was a way to move forward, but you know, now it's going to, I think we're coming into a point where we're going to have to revisit the powder piece of it again, because we'll have squeezed cost out of, you know, the other elements of the, of the value chain and we'll have to come back and revisit it. And, and, you know, 
uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Uh, I think there's, there's some people out there making some interesting noises. I, I've talked to a lot of more people now recently where, you know, the, the magic of sphericity, you know, doesn't really seem to have the, the luster that it once had. Um, because it, you know, you don't need, you, you need a certain amount of let's call it flowability, but you don't need, you know, perfect flowability because again, it's like martial arts, you know, any energy can be used for or against you. And at some point, if it flows too well, it's going to flow out of position just as easy. I think, you know, there's a lot, lot to be learned there. And, and there was some interesting work done, I think recently by Ohio State where they showed, you know, we don't really need a perfectly dense bed <laughs> to get good parts. Yeah. It, it, I think it, they said they needed something like 40% dense, you know, packing density. Yeah. So fortunately, there's a lot of smart people out there doing a lot of work on really looking at what happens, you know, as the laser's hitting the powder bed or, you, you know, even with the binder and you know, when binder jetting, what happens when binders hit the, the powder bed? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, you know, it's always one of these things where I, you, the data is there. There's even images and movies of, of how this yeah. stuff actually works. It's not, up for debate this is what actually happens and yet you know it's kind of like well we just we just need better powder to be more dense no you're beating up the surface <laughs> you're not, you don't <laughs> you don't need that i think i think we've seen a lot of stuff evolve but I, I still think you know it's it's not a black box but it's like a gray box now and still super complicated machines with lots of settings you know we're getting cameras we're getting quad lasers you know we're getting more industrial machines i guess i, I agree with you completely powder needs to be revisited i mean what are some other things do you think that we really need to work out if we want to want to really industrialize this technology uh, and and the, the good news is there's a lot of people working on this now, but it's just like even the uh, proving that you did what you thought you were going to do. Uh, mm -hmm. So even being able to calibrate things. And, and so, um, you know, you can set the laser for 400 watts. I mean, are you getting 400 watts? You know, mm -hmm. who knows? Um, so, you know, we, we've seen some machines kind of take a path and, that have very good calibration control now you know i think Velo has a, has a very interesting suite of software which mm -hmm. you know i think is yep. very functional for you know it's maybe it's not sexy but it's uh well i wish we had it <laughs> when, yeah. when we were trying to make parts for airbus yeah. um uh, because it gives you a lot of insight as to what's actually happening and, and and that's the reality of all manufacturing is like we we all have a good intent to make a good part but in between then there's lots of switches and lots of things happen and we just need to actually know what, what occurred and we can deal with it. You know, even in forging and casting, we, we still do material review board on parts today. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this is a new phenomenon. We, we know how uh, we have engineers whose whole job is to say, okay, this is what happened. Can we still use the part or not? And, you know, they go back and do some calculations and say, yeah, or we need to do this to it and it's good. You know, I think those, those elements, are really good. I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff that's going on. I, we we jumped. We we tried to jump right into like in situ monitoring control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, boy. I mean, the, yeah. yeah, that that seems like really hard to me uh, mm -hmm. to be able to make you know instant correction. Let's talk about data uh, manipulation. That that's mm -hmm. you know my head blows up uh, at, mm -hmm. at how much data is being generated. But, you know, we've seen now one, one company is, is developed a suite of machine learning where they just, they observe what's going on. It's external to the printer itself. I mean, it could be inside, but they're using different spectrums to view the, the powder bed. 
and you know over a hundred layers that are gathering information. And so they the machine learning kicks in and then basically says, we've seen this before, 80% of the time it ends up in a bad situation, we're gonna terminate the build. And then sometimes it says, there's something going on, we're not really sure, human, do you wanna do something here? But honestly, that that's a good solution. If I if I could if I have a four day build and I know somewhere in any of those days that things are going poorly, and I'm not going to survive the build, you know, and allows me to terminate it a day early, two days early, three days early, mm-hmm. that's that's good. You know that that's a win. Right. So I that's think that's print right, right? That's print right, right? Or TensorFlow or whatever it's called. Uh, is well, what the, about, additive assurance, is additive assur- yeah, oh, additive yeah. assurance is, is the one specifically yeah. that I was, that I was thinking of. Um, but oh, you know, okay, there, okay. there's, there's a, there's a few that are kind of honing in on, you know, similar ideas using machine learning and, and whatnot. Do, yeah. Are you seeing more industries starting to pick this up beyond Arrow? Yeah. I and mean, who yeah. do you think is the largest driver now? Well, I, Arrow and medical are still the largest drivers, but, um, I think that, automotive uh, does seem to be creating some change uh, in, in the way that people are looking at the machines or even which t- technology, you know, may be appropriate. You know, honestly, I, we were in, uh, where were we, Belgium, I think, and I was talking to somebody and they, and they said that an industrial uh, baking uh, company, you <laughs> know, was using added manufacturing. And I was like, well, uh, how, God. I don't want to be, I don't want to be dismissive, but how does a company that makes baking equipment, you know, find its way uh, into added manufacturing? This is, this and, is, okay. This is absolutely beautiful example, but anyway, go on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that the, the answer was, they said, well, you know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, the guy who owns or manages the company is, you know, a voracious reader. Uh, he's curious. And he was like, Hey, uh, this is interesting. Can this solve problems for us? And, you know, then I guess the rest is history, but you know, we don't hear about those examples much and, and that's the nature well, of the beast right now. What was the so problem that they solved? Uh, uh, I, I don't even know. I'm obsessed with this. I'm obsessed with this. It's a cock hoop. It's K-A-K-A-K. They make like, like machines that would make like a million croissants a day or whatever. Those like really big bakery lines, you know? So wherever like the, you know, everything in your supermarket that's baked comes from them and everything that's like kind of like industrially baked. So the first thing that I heard about them is they bought an additive industries machine. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> additive industries is like the value proposition for the machine is there if you do a lot of serial parts. It's 1.5 million. They were very untried. Like Airbus had one, but it's like Airbus yeah. can afford to do this, you know? And then, and then I was like, bakery? What the hell, right? So I was hearing that they were stacking parts, right? So they were stacking parts to fill the whole build, which almost nobody does. And, and, or if they do it, they just do one layer of teeth or whatever. Because stacking a part to fill a build is just really expensive. If something goes wrong, it's, like, it's ridiculously expensive. And they were doing it to do serial parts on these machines. And I was like, there's, there's no business case for this. It's stupid, right? Because any of the parts on these machines are like any of these holders and things you're doing, you could make with another technology. You can make it cheaper. I don't understand these people. Now, now they have their own like 3D printing kind of service and they've really invested in it. And there's one thing that really, to me, is my favorite, like the Hydro business case is my favorite one. And this is my second favorite business case for metal printing outside of aerospace. And it's a knife that cuts bread, right? So it cuts on one of these lines. Mm-hmm. It cuts bread and it's hollow and it has holes in it. So it's lighter, right? So that means that they can cut more bread per hour. So actually, this knife actually makes the machine faster by being lighter, right? 
So they've actually managed to make this one critical component that makes this really gigantic croissant or whatever line faster. And then they blow in air through the knife and that makes the dough release from it faster and makes it so that less dough sticks on it. So they have less errors on the machine. Yeah. And now all of a sudden we're talking about something that I'm thinking, okay, now I understand this knife thing is beautiful. It's, I think it's a wonderful business case for more general industry. Uh, but initially I thought it was like a complete insane. I mean, all these guys are crazy for, for like for two, three years. I was like, what are they doing? Why? There's gotta be a good sliced bread joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's better than bread. But you know, but, but that, but if you boil it down, I mean, it, it goes back to what we were talking about, which is what problem are we solving? <laughs> you know, and they, and they probably weren't trying to use additive necessarily. They were probably like, we need to do this, you know, and the problem we can't do that today is because of this. And okay, I additive actually solves that problem for us. So mm -hmm. I, I like to think in my world that that's how they approach it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think what I've noticed, for example, like years ago when I first started my customers, the only thing I would do, um, you know, was to say, say to them, no, we can't do this. No, we can't do that. <laughs> that's too expensive, <laughs> right? <laughs> And I think now, like, there's less no there. There's more, there's more actual, we've gotten to the point where there's a more actual chance for us to actually do stuff, you know? Are you noticing that as well, that there's a more actual, apart from, like, that it's the CEO wanting to do something, that there's actually more interesting, like, that we, there are more cases that we can solve things and more things that we can do cost-effectively? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the case of the CEO telling the, the vice president of engineering to go buy a machine is yeah, has exactly. died off a bit. And, um, yeah which is i think probably good but along with that you know we were doing a uh training course with uh nasa jet propulsion labs and you know one of the conversations that we got into or one a use case that we present which i think is better uh, really well suited for them given what they do is the idea that you can make things and break it mm -hmm. because the parts are really hard to analyze but we kind of pointed out, you know, by the way, your colleagues, you know, 50, 60 years ago, this is what they did. <laughs> they had a slide <laughs> rule to do calculations with. They didn't have fancy finite elements and CFD and all these fantastic tools. That can't be an excuse why you're not using it because other people, engineers have solved these problems for centuries and they do so by testing. And mm -hmm. empirical data tends to be better than analytical data. That is, that is a thing, you know, that I, that I am seeing more frequently and, you know, to industries like aerospace and oil and gas, they're a little bit more used to it because uh, certainly at Lockheed, you know, we made sometimes tens of things, you know, we weren't mm -hmm. going to, there's only so much effort you can put into, um, you know, uh, series production when series production is 10 or a hundred. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh, so oftentimes, you know, you do your test and you prove it safe and you're done. And, mm -hmm. and then you do take some considerations, you know, in your manufacturing process and your assembly and all that kind of thing. But I think that then feeds into this, you know, qualification and, and certification and whatever that means to a particular company, um, mm -hmm. you know, is open for debate. But I just, uh, sometimes I just feel like we've lost the, the thread on making stuff that we've been making the same stuff for such a long time. And then, uh, and then something new comes along and I was like, Oh, well, you know, we do this. So, you know, yeah. my, my experience is kind of born from when I was at Lockheed and we were, we were doing a project for C-130. So, you know, this is a plane mm -hmm. that's been in production since 1955 and yeah. we were trying to use friction stir welding 
to replace the floor structure. And um, we had to prove equivalency to the 1955 floor. So we actually had to find a 1955 <laughs> uh, mill spec tire uh, because that's how that floor was proof tested, you know, back in the day. And, um, but it was, you know, we could do the, it was interesting because the analysis wasn't there to prove it good. The test was there to prove it good. The analysis was, t was to tell us whether we were going to pass the test or not. Right. Yeah. Uh I love this as, as a point. I mean, I was doing another podcast thing and I, I came up with exactly the same thing. I mean, I think one thing, like I was talking to a guy at GE Additive at one point, and they were saying they wanted to make hundreds of iterations of parts, right? And also for physical testing. And I thought, wait, you mean hundreds of iterations to get it through the test, right? Which already explains that I'm corrupted, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a lost soul on this, right? <laughs> and they were like, no, no, to optimize them, right? So they were literally going to print out hundreds of these these aircraft critical parts to 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 optimize their their functionality. Let's say, and that to me at the time, it's years ago in my in my defense, but um, was like really interesting to me. I'm thinking, wait a minute, you would build to real world test stuff, so you'd skip all the software, you'd skip all the stuff. You're not testing it to pass the test; you're testing it to see whatever effect, right? And I was reminded by this the other day when when I was thinking about you know if you go to the Enzo Ferrari the Ferrari Museum, right? In, uh, in Italy, there's like Enzo Ferrari's office. And in Enzo Ferrari's office, he has a whole bunch of broken parts, you know? Mm -hmm. So you would imagine you go into this guy's office, you're, you're an engineer on the F1 team, because that's the only thing that mattered to him, right? And everything else paid for the F1 team. And, and, and you're in the room and you know that your broken disc brake or something is there, right? Where Enzo put it and they would analyze it and you would get everybody around the table and talk about this broken part. And you would be sitting there, right? You're asking for a raise. You're sitting in a hall of like broken parts. And it's like this little office. It's not very big, but it's filled with broken F1 parts. <laughs> and I think that's a really interesting point that people aren't really paying attention to this and aren't really making things better using the real world. Well, I have a, I have a similar story, but it's more of a, a, person, a people story. So when I was at, at Skunkworks, I, um, mm -hmm. I, I was very fortunate that, you know, Frank Capuccio, who was the head of Skunkworks, had taken to you know actually talking to me on, on occasions kind of kind of like as wow. a mentor and <laughs> okay. and he told me one time that they were we had some project that was one of these crazy things you know we had a vehicle that was supposed to do this crazy maneuver and, and all these types of things so the program they, they had an incident uh, on the runway and fortunately you know nobody was hurt and the vehicle was safe um, but he says <laughs> the program manager came in and kind of slinked into his office and he's like, well, sit down, what happened? And the guy went through methodically and he's like, well, this is what happened. We, we didn't take into account this. We didn't foresee this kind of event happening. And that's what resulted in blank, 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 blank. And he goes, so anyway, I guess, you know, I, I'm happy to fill in the next program manager. <laughs> and Frank goes, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm fired, right? And he's like, no, if you'd have come in here and you didn't have any of that explanation, you're right. totally fired. <laughs> but yeah. you're, you've got more information. You've got more knowledge about this particular product than anybody in the world right now. Why would I fire you for that? And that was what was kind of unique about Skunk Works was like, we just didn't think about failure the same way as other people did. Like if you, mm -hmm. if you broke something, that wasn't failure. That was just like, that's a data point. We're going to use that. We're going to keep going. We always felt like we were going to be able to solve the problem not because we were arrogant. It was just like, because there was no other alternative. You know, we just, we just needed to, and you're surrounded by other smart people and we're all just, there's no hubris. We're just going to go do it. So anyway, I, I think that 
perspective, you know, is rather unique. And it was very interesting for me to hear that from him. I definitely feel though that perspective has uh, permeated more with like the maker movement, so to speak, uh, globally of this idea of failing to find the answer, so to speak. And uh, I, I hope that that continues and that we fail our way forward, so to speak. Fail our way forward, yeah. <laughs> fail upward. Yeah. Well, I, th I think it's an interesting idea that with our technology, you can fail faster than anything else. So we right. can fail, we can test, and we can fail again in a much, much accelerated rate. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I think it's also interesting that the, one of the most innovative engineering companies or units in the world, Skunkworks, is built on this kind of acceptance of failure. We think maybe, like, maybe you would think it would be a really uptight environment where failure isn't tolerated. But I think you do have to fail to get ahead. I mean, for the people who don't wear Skunk Works, they made the U2 spy plane, <laughs> the SR-71 Blackbird, and uh, yeah, some other stuff as well, right? The Stealth Fighters. Like? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Lots of cool C toys. Sea <laughs> Shadow. I was watching that the other day on the History Channel. <laughs> yeah, the Sea Shadow. Yeah, that's, that's a big drone, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, the stealth ship. That was the first stealth ship. Oh, right. Yeah. I imagine oh, the there are a lot of interesting ship? toys oh, yeah. that skunk works. Yeah. Uh, what was like, it like working there? Well, you know, I was an airplane guy. So, you know, that part was always fascinating to me. Um, and, you know, to walk out any day and go see F-22s or F-35s or C-5s or, you know, what have you. And if you're out in Palmdale, you know, the random U-2 flies by or something like that. But, <laughs> um, it, you know... It, it was definitely one of the best engineering teams that I've, you know, that I've ever had the privilege to kind of work with on a long-term basis. So there was, there was always somebody that could figure out the answer to your question. And you oftentimes had to be very creative about that because, you know, either you weren't cleared to that program or they weren't. So then you're kind of like, right. give me at least two pieces of the puzzle. I can't do that. Okay, so this is going to be hard. Um, but, it, you know, it was, uh, look, I, I think it's a good story in a lot of ways. I mean, if from the people side, you're, you're looking at specifically aeronautics, you know, was, was a company that was made up of a lot of companies previously. But you had uh, Georgia and California, which were the two legacy Lockheed facilities, and then Fort Worth, which was really legacy General Dynamics. Slightly different culture. But you know, somehow it, it, it kind of had some harmony to it. And, and what is it, if, you, if you're looking at the time, I mean, there you're really working. So on the one hand, you have this creativity and these unsolved problems and this mystery about what, what you can make. And you've got this new, exciting technology, this 3D printing technology. I mean, when the rubber meets the road, when you're trying to apply these, what were the problems you actually encountered by, you know, trying to use 3D printing as an actual problem-solving technology? I, I think it was rather unspectacular. Uh, it was the usual stuff. And, and this, this is the challenge. And, it, and it's, you know, can we inspect what we've made? Um, mm -hmm. uh, can, it be, can we prove it to be good analytically? Uh, do the test, does the test data meet you know, our allowables and, and vice versa? Um, so, or do we need to create new allowables? And, and so these are always the challenges with any new manufacturing technology that comes along, you know, and you often mm -hmm. heard the, the term drop-in replacement, you know, that's the panacea. You always hope that you can just mm -hmm. be a drop-in replacement, but mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I ever <laughs> managed to be a drop-in replacement. So there's yeah. always some test, it's uh, some data generation that's required and some testing. But, mm -hmm. you know, where we, uh, where we saw uh, difficulties was, was around, you know, if we could make a business case, the business case was always tough because we had limited quantities in order to do the payback. 
and we had uh, you know a certain amount of cost that's just built in that we have to do, and and that's you know trying to argue that this technology doesn't require that test or doesn't do this, you know that is always a complex uh, argument to make. So it's kind of why now we always tell people like let's let's go have a conversation with all the stakeholders now, and mm-hmm. and let's kind of get it out on the table what we think is going to be a problem, so we can kind of make this decision early. And, and that's kind of where I arrived at when I was uh, with my team at, at Lockheed was let's, I used to say, let's trade it before we try it. Let's do a paper study before we start uh, committing to, to making stuff. Which is actually a bit of a failing of the technology because we're always telling people that we're very fast to, from idea to part and we're very fast to prototype and we're very fast to get things out the door. I mean, it's kind of a failing, I think. It still is too expensive even for, well, prototyping in metal, I think, not a lot of people can actually make that work for them in generally. Did you see that get better? Did, did it get better year on year? Or are we not really solving the problems that additive actually creates or doesn't solve? No, it's getting better. I mean, I think the, usually what happens is, is you know, as is the case, you know, like before a couple of years ago, we'd all say, well, we can't use additive because there's no specifications. And then all of a sudden, you know, SAE and, ASTM and the various societies, you know, do what they do and they come up with specifications. And, and so we can argue whether they're perfect. Uh, they're probably not, but now we have something to work with and, and it's consistent. So that should breed some consistency and we have more guidance than we've had in the past on, you know, processes and things like that. So I, I see that all being better. So we've got more tools to be able to apply. It still comes back to the humans, though. They, they kind of have to make a call. You know, all the data in the world isn't going to do anything for you if it's not converted to information and communicated correctly. And if, and if the will is not there, it just doesn't really matter. You know, you're, it's, it's hard to come up with a business case that's, like, so obvious. Anything that's new, you know, there's always risk associated with it because you're always going to have to generate some data. Somebody's going to have to pay for it. It then becomes part of the business case. Um, so, you know, you, you need to be really creative on how, how you arrive at that business case, but you know, people are out there doing it. I mean, we're, my goodness. So we, we work with a large transportation company. It's not exactly a company, you know, given what they make that you'd think that this is an obvious fit for them, but they've been very, I'll say creative. No, they haven't been creative. They've just been methodical. And, and they've looked under the right rocks and they've answered the right questions and they can make a business case. The humans that they have involved are really good at what they do. So that's always helpful. <laughs> All right, you're a professor at two different universities. How do you do that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very carefully. <laughs> well, one's in the Southern Hemisphere, so that kind of gives yeah. me you know, more time. Uh, yeah, so I'm an adjunct at, at, at both Carnegie Mellon and RMIT, so I don't, I occasionally uh, fill in as a as a teacher or provide some, let's say, industrial uh, expertise is not the word I'm looking for. Perspective uh, on you know what life is like in an actual working environment and what engineers do on an actual day to day basis and you know kind of the here's the theory of additive and here's what actually happens when uh, a bucket of powder is is put into a machine that you know. The humidity is mm-hmm. too high, or you know, these yeah, things happen. This, this yeah. is a real, mm-hmm. this is a reality. So I enjoy it. Uh, we we sponsored um, TBGA sponsored uh, 
an engineering public policy class at uh, Carnegie Mellon this uh, this last term. And to me, you know, I didn't know that this this thing existed because it's totally what I would have majored in. But it's it's that nexus of kind of public policy, looking at macro benefits of very technical things. And so mm-hmm. while the focus was on neighborhood 91, you know, mm-hmm. basically my my job was to work with the students and answer their questions on what does industry think is, is valuable? Is, is this a good premise? Is it not? You know, we do different things and we, we volunteering is, is part of our kind of corporate culture, if you want to call it. So we always want to be part of the fabric of, of additive, as, as mm-hmm. I like to say. I mean, if you're from a college perspective, I mean, how should we teach kids or what should we teach them if we're, if we're talking about, like, you keep saying, okay, we need new brains. Okay, what kind of brains do they want? Like, I like the idea of like as diverse as possible from lots of different backgrounds, but are there specific things they, these kids should master or be taught that, that, that's, that's elusive at the moment? You know, I, I think it's basics. Um, you know, so, you know, as a materials engineer, I, I took a processing class. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that you need to have a, I don't know that we need to have us put a whole semester course in, you know, for every engineer, maybe it's an elective, but you know, when you go look at processing, if you're going to talk about casting and forging, let's also talk about additive. You know, if I do this to the material, I, you know, the property processing triangle. Okay. Uh, in additive, we started with, maybe we started with atomized powder, which is in and of itself a rapid solidification process. And then I'm going to put it in this machine and solidify it again and then heat it up and then cool it down and heat it up and cool it down another hundred times. You know, so I think it deserves a place in that. Uh, I had a conversation with the head of the materials engineering school at Purdue and he, he asked me, you know, should, should we buy a a 3d printer like a metal one? And I said, oh, God, at no. this point, at the, well, I said, at this point, you're, you're doing the students a disservice by not having one. Like, right. there's no reason not to have one anymore. There's, there's lower cost ones. Uh, I'm sure you could probably get one donated to you. And, and he was occupied. The reason why he was occupied by it, he was worried about the ongoing cost of running it because powders are expensive. So that's a valid it's concern. It's 100, 200K a year, right? Per machine or something like that, right? Easy. Yeah, easy. And um, and I said, uh, granted, it is. But I said, you, you will be doing your students a disservice if they don't have awareness of it. So I'm not telling you to go buy a machine now. But I but I would really be surprised at a university of your size that there's not money <laughs> to take care of that. Like this is it's a disruptive enough technology that it deserves a place. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I, I probably wouldn't have said the same thing about like friction stir welding. You know, does it deserve yeah. uh, maybe a nod in a class at some point? Yes. Do you need to buy a machine? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And also, you uh, as the Barnes Group advisors, uh, TBGA, you guys also do like kind of more uh, courses for business people and stuff like that, right? So, so what do these people want? What do you guys want to teach these guys? Yeah, so we have a corporate training that we've developed and it kind of run, it, basically you don't have to know anything about additive at the beginning of the course. So we, we, we like to have managers included, program managers and supply chain people. They don't have to sit through the entire thing, but it's as much about getting some of the concepts and some of the language down. And, you know, just like uh, we talk about, we've, we've created a maturity model approach, you know, kind of where we started this conversation should you start with a highly lattice gradient structure? No, 
<laughs> let's let's just you know start with some simple shapes and figure out how to analyze and generate the data to support that and figure out the, the qualification path you know, to get that part into service. Then we can gradually work our way up to that lattice, you know, gradient structure, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So we try to take that kind of maturity model approach and we use it as a theme throughout the whole training module. And we say, hey, this is how you, know, you kind of step into this. And it's simply saying, like, as your product requirements increase, your skills and knowledge have to increase. And you shouldn't expect to know everything on day one. You know, it's, it's a learning process. And, and then we do the online training. Uh, we created that in partnership with Purdue uh, University. So, you know, we created it uh, from our experience. And we're the instructors for it. Purdue lent their, uh, let's say, education criteria to make sure that it was, you know, a, a credible product and worthy of getting continuing education units. But you know, it, it's a really good answer, especially in these days where you know you can't travel. It's completely online, so you can, you know, sign right. up, start when you want, go at your own pace, and and you know, end up with a certificate from Purdue. Are you, are you surprised that like, because you've been working on out of, and the overlap out of aerospace for a very long time. There are not a lot of people that have been doing it longer than you actually. <laughs> um, but, you know, are you, are you surprised at how quickly it went recently? I mean, okay, so it was like, Adidas was introduced on some body aircraft, you know, some military retrofits. All of a sudden you've got the, uh, well, the, the Lockheed aircraft. Uh, so so the, 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 the lightning and stuff like that, which use a lot of 3D printing parts. And then all of a sudden it's it's everywhere, right? So it used to be a small solution, now it's everywhere. And then all of a sudden in commercial space, it's looking like for propulsion systems, 3D printing is, and then a lot of other things besides, 3D printing is becoming like the default technology on uh, of that industry. Is 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 that rapidity surprised you, or given that you know from the the shop floor, if you will, the difficulty of of, of trying to implement this technology? I don't think it surprises me. I mean, I, I think it's. Uh... It, it kind of follows a path, you know, and it's, if something solves a problem, it gets taken up as more people learn about it. And, mm -hmm. and so it doesn't surprise me, you know, that it's going to become the, the, basically the default for, for rockets and it will become the default for certain types of parts. It's just that we don't know what those certain types of parts are yet. And so there's, mm -hmm. there's an absorption problem and, and there'll be a bit of a lag, and then there'll be another surge. So, mm -hmm. you know, as, as bigger companies that put center of excellence uh, teams together, so maybe they have like a dozen people and those people understand additive really well. Mm -hmm. So they kind of get to a certain level and they start, they get some wins on the board. But, you know, in some of these companies, you'll have 10,000, 50,000 engineers. There's a huge gap <laughs> to go from 12 <laughs> to 10,000 or, or, or 50,000. And that's really when you're going to start to see, um, you know, massive uh, change in terms of adoption. Mm -hmm. So I, my mm -hmm. guess is, my observation is, is companies like GE, you know, have been relatively successful at that because they take, A, they appreciate training and education, and, and they've been very methodical about pushing this idea into their other lines of business. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, but no, it, I, honestly, I wouldn't say I, I, I was surprised. I mean, it's, it's always a fight, you know, that as a mm -hmm. technologist, that it's always going to be a fight and nobody's going to give you anything for free. Um, mm -hmm. And in actual, you know, even getting the money to even go off and try the premise is, is a fight. It's a, so we used to say that's, 
it's a full contact sport at Lockheed because mm -hmm. there's a lot of engineers with a lot of good ideas. <laughs> right. So, well. uh, you know, it, it, you got to step up your game if you're going to take that money away from somebody else. I once, like years ago, I mean, it's over a decade now, I once argued for uh, like a U.S. government thing that I thought that 3D printing was only going to be see limited usage, but in very critical applications and enough of these applications that it was going to be strategic for the country because it could make those weapon systems iteratively better. It could improve those critical systems in a quicker pace to make them more suited to the battlefield or the, the war that the U.S. is fighting. In them. And the idea was that, that, that it you know, it was going to definitely be a strategic technology for the United States, you know, even though it didn't make the whole tank or the whole ICBM or whatever, but it was still going to be very strategic. Would you agree with that or? Totally. Yeah. So years ago, uh, we briefed the head of DARPA, um, uh, Regina Dugan and, and spiraling was, was what DARPA was about then, which was, it was this notion that, you know, she had two data points. One was, if uh, I forget who came up with this idea, but if you if you look at what the U.S. spends on uh, aircraft development, it eventually we'll be able to afford one of the aircraft. <laughs> um, the other one was the simple basics of look at like MRAP, you know, and IEDs. So the enemy goes off and spends 400 bucks on figuring out put to, how to put more C4 in a uh, improvised device. Uh, we go spend a billion dollars on coming up with a V-shaped hole, you know, <laughs> thing. So what do they do? They go figure out how to defeat that threat with another hundred and fifty dollars. You know, we we can't win that that battle. At some point, we'll lose that battle. It's like the reverse Cold War. You know, we'll we'll out, we'll try to outspend the Russians. Um, so I I do think there's that. And and the one thing that's always stuck with me, I worked with a guy who was a, a Bradley. Uh, vehicle commander in Gulf War One, and he, he told me that his gun was inoperable for one of like a 10 cent part so on day one of the ground war he's racing into Kuwait at flank speed with no gun <laughs> and if and if they just had access to basically a you know a 3d printer of the day even you know a simple FDM type machine he's like I I'd have printed out a thousand of these things and just kept chucking it in there and pulling it out. Even if it broke every second right. shot, you know, I'd have felt better. Um, so obviously he lived to tell the tale, but there's, there's all kinds of interesting stories. And I think this is, this is actually a single point and I, and I like it in the context of the current kind of pandemic situation. Uh, and I told it to this class, and, you know, it's the constant thing of adapt, overcome, persevere. You know, if you're a soldier, that's your only choice. <laughs> you have three. <laughs> the fourth one is dying. That's kind of permanent. Uh, so, you know, when we did this class, nobody whined about it. Nobody complained about it. And I said, you know, I really appreciate that you guys have adapted, overcome, and persevered on this. There's, there's lots of different ways of asking this thing. There's lots of different ways of sharing knowledge. And, and that's what the militaries are about. You know, you see the Australian Defense Force is doing interesting things with, with cold spray and, and making an expeditionary unit. Uh, out of what they're doing and this you know it solves a problem for them and that's that's key and you don't have to even merchant uh shipping when you're two weeks away from a port again having uh, printer, uh, something yeah. that breaks uh, every other day is better than just not having anything at all 
Now that's not always true. <laughs> so let me put a caveat on that. But you know, for the right application, it's okay to put something in, let it break, replace it, put something in, let it break. So it's always that difference between having to go to depot to get maintained versus being a being field maintained. So there's a lot of push now to put 3D printers in the US military at forward operating bases. Um, do you think it's too soon for that? Or do you think just for the reasons you just stated that no, this is like they should have done this years ago? I don't think it's too soon. I mean, I, I, it's all what you, I guess it's gauging what your making. Yeah. Um, you know, because years ago, the army put together, you know, a, a kind of a mobile hospital, parts hospital, you know, with a lens machine and an ISO container. And, uh, you know, I don't know what they felt, whether that was a success or not. It was probably a degree of success, but you know, you got a data point and you learn to move on. And uh, I think that look at the space station, you know, if years ago you used to have to do that exercise. If you were going to bring five tools on a 20 year space flight, which five tools would you bring? And you go look at the failure modes and the mean time between failures for different things. Well, we don't have to answer that question anymore because we could just bring a spool of filament and a 3d printer and we can make anything we want. We don't have to guess correctly. We'll probably be able to work that out. So it's, let's think about the problem a little bit differently. I mean, we yeah. had, I was surprised we had nine U S Marines take the Purdue um, certificate course mm -hmm. uh, simply because the commandant of the Marine Corps said, we will use additive manufacturing. And so the Lieutenant's like, heck yeah, we're going to use additive manufacturing. What's additive manufacturing. <laughs> so, <he> went, <laughs> and uh, you know, signed up Booyah, his gunnery sergeant and, and uh, his corporal and, you know, and, and his captain then took the course. So I, as I've always said, soldiers are very innovative. <laughs> you just have to give them the tools and, mm -hmm. and they will figure stuff out because they use things in a way that most of us never would. So I have to ask this just for my own reasons, <laughs> but um, what, are you, what are your feelings on 3D pens? <laughs> well, I think that they're... Um, I don't have any hard feelings about it one or the other. <laughs> I, think they're, I think they're good for kids because the concept, it's an early way to think about something that's, you know, captures your imagination. You know, so the training tool or kind of educational tool, I think it's useful because, uh, you know, the, the 3D, the, even the, the low-end 3D printers are still hundreds of dollars and the material still costs something. So if it's something that gets into a school that can't afford you know, a small FDM printer, uh, I, I say, go for it. I mean, it's all about exposure. Sooner you're, sooner you're exposed to something, the more time you have to think about it. What about repairing 3d prints, FDM prints with it? Well, you know, for an airplane part, no, <laughs> no, not for an airplane part. That's a, <laughs> uh, you know, it's all right. I think, yeah. I think it's a clever, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a clever solution to a problem, you know, and it, it kind of goes back to everything else, which is like, let's, let's give it a go. And if it works great. And if it doesn't work, okay, well, what does it need to make it work? Is it just an interfacial problem? Okay. Well, you could probably figure that out. Uh, we can wipe some solvent on there maybe and, and then do it again. Wow. I mean, we've covered quite a lot of uh, different topics and this has been a fascinating chat. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. Jim? Yeah, thanks for yeah. having me. It was a fun <laughs> conversation. Likewise. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much to John Barnes, the Barnes Group Advisors, for joining us today. I thought it was really great uh, to learn a little bit more about what he's been doing and everything like that. So thank you so much for, for being on the 3D pod today, John.
Thank you, yours. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks again also from Max and myself for you guys for listening. And thank you so much. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. And keep your suggestions coming to us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.